You are listening to a series called Shadows, Discovering Christ Through the Old Testament from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, uh, a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace, and also one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and I'm really thankful, grateful to have this time with you today. Thanks for being here, taking some time out of your really pretty weekend um, to spend it here uh, gathered with the Axis Church family. <clears throat> this is uh, week three of our 10-week series that we've entitled Shadows, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. There should be some Bibles scattered around the room under the seats in front of you, for those who have seats in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you see that one, grab that one, write your name in it, take it home, use it, read it the rest of your life. Um, as we begin, I want us to first start with a particular perspective in reading and understanding and applying and obeying the Old Testament. You see, the Bible is written with a trajectory in mind, and every part of the Bible falls within one of these four acts, these four segments, these four portions of the grand meta-narrative, the grand story of redemption. And it flows in four parts. It starts with creation and then the fall. Then it has redemption through Christ and then recreation. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. So the Bible is one seamless book, and it's really all about God's plan to redeem and restore and rescue his people, his children, from themselves and the consequences of their own actions. So what this means in part is that even in the Old Testament, we get glimpses, we get types, we get tastes, we get pictures, we get shadows, if you will, of the Redeemer who will one day come and make all things new and better. The Old Testament, the Old Testament stories, they're not for us to find heroes to imitate. It's not to look back to the Old Testament to find heroes that we should admire and follow our life after those heroes. Certainly there's some wisdom to do that, but that's not the main purpose of the Old Testament. You see, much of our Old Testament is meant to foreshadow. It's, it's meant to point to a true and better hero who lived and acted for us. Of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the only way to the Father. So the main purpose of our time together over these 10 weeks in our series of the shadows is to raise our affections for Jesus Christ. Um, to raise uh, our attention, to focus on him, to increase reasons to admire who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. So with this sort of setting our perspectives and groundwork for our series, let's, uh, let's jump in. We're going to be looking today at Jesus through the lens and story of Adam in the garden. <clears throat> today in our life, 2023, we find ourselves often under a lot of weight of struggle and problems, overwhelmed by what life is doing to us and what people are doing to us. We carry diseases, some that we see, some that we can't see. We shoulder burdens and anxieties, trouble and depression. Financial insecurities boggle our minds, relational tensions trouble our hearts, Fears of the future 
are on our minds. Discouragement of our present is overwhelming. And regrets of our past just continue to loiter our thoughts. But there's like this constant sense of guilt that's a cloud even on our best days, in our best moments. We're often tormented within, though we try really hard to cover it up and to keep it from being so obvious to other people. But many know it. Many can tell that something is bothering us. The disappointments that you have encountered in your life are many. The disappointments that I've shouldered can cause us to think to ourselves that not only have we experienced disappointment, but if it accumulates enough, we feel like we are a cosmic disappointment. And if we're honest, we want to know where we can find relief. And we ask ourselves, man, what can I do? Is there anything I can do? Is there any way I can escape the situation? How, how do I make my life easier? Well, today we're going to be looking at the source of our trouble. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at the, the source of our situation from the very word of God. And so in Genesis, you see, we learn about why humanity is in the condition that it's in today. In Genesis, we're going to learn why things are the way that they are in the world, as well as in our own lives and the situations that we find ourselves in. Have you ever thought about the Garden of Eden before? What it looked like, sounded like, smelt like? What would it have been like in the Garden of Eden before sin? How do you picture it in your mind's eye? For those who want to, close your eyes. You don't have to. I'm not going to make you. Um, but like in your mind's eye, if, 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 for those who want to, close your eyes and just picture the Garden of Eden. I always, for some reason, picture it as something tropical. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but okay, so in your mind's eye, think of, okay, creation. There's animals. There's mankind. Everything's perfect. Everything's at peace. It's sinless. It's beautiful. It's paradise. Everything is working in harmony. Nothing is wrong. Nothing. There's perfect rest, a lot of fun, and innocence. Okay, that's a nice place to think about, isn't it? The Garden of Eden. You see, Eden is the... Eden is what we desire our current life to be. And it's frustrating when our current life doesn't match up with Eden. Eden was absolute and complete perfection. It was God's people living in God's full presence, living for God's purposes. Mankind doing God's thing in God's way. And this creation was declared to be very good. Everything that God made was good. No mosquitoes, no ticks, no yellow jackets. Of course, they were present in creation, but not the way that we know them of today. Even they were affected by mankind's decision. No getting up too early. No sweat. No heat. No humidity. At least not 100% humidity. That's not of God. No... <clears throat> No concern about how we look in the mirror. In the Garden of Eden, they did not care what they looked like. No worry about money. No disorders of any kind. 
No anxiety. No panic attacks. No September 11th. No terrorism. No hate, no stealing, no need for passwords. I hate, <laughs> loathe when I'm asked for my password. I am who I am. Let me look at what I need to look at. No locks, no keys, because there's perfect trust. Everyone's doing the right thing all the time for the right reasons. No racial prejudice. No social injustice, no cancer, no heart disease, no diabetes, no leukemia, no divorce, no struggle, no discomfort whatsoever, no sadness at all, no depression, no death. It was blissful. It was pure. I don't have to tell you, this is not the world we live in. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 18. So everything was made, everything was good, very good. And then before sin, before sin entered the picture, there was something that was wrong. There was something that was not good. Look in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Even right there, we know that we're built for community. It is not good or healthy when we live in isolation when we live disengaged from others and community. It is good when we press into community. It was not good for Adam to be alone. He needed community. You do too. The wise person would say, but what type of community? A good, wholesome community is what you need. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast in the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to Adam the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper, a mate fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And here's the first surgery. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, wow, it's Hebrew, for uh, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then here's a, a doctrine of marriage. Here's a theology of marriage, the very beginning. And don't get these three things out of order. This is God's design, God's way. Man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Don't become one flesh before you've left your father and mother, held fast to one another. And then you become one flesh. Don't get this out of order. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, we learn about in Revelation 12, Isaiah 14, Revelation 20, Ezekiel 28, and Luke chapter 10, among other passages, that Satan is a fallen angel. And he attempted to rob God of his glory. And he was sent out of heaven by God, and he's now at work trying to trick and deceive mankind. He's out to steal, kill, and to destroy. He's like a lion on the prowl in high, tall grass, seeking 
whom he may devour whenever he wants. Well, as he leaves heaven, we're told that he tricked a third of all the angels in heaven to follow him. These are his demons. How crafty he is, how manipulative, how influential he is. In the next passage, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, comes to the garden as a serpent. He never wants attention. Satan, Lucifer, the devil, our enemy, never wants attention on himself. Even in the garden, he wears a costume. He doesn't want to be seen for who he really is. He doesn't want attention. He's just constantly trying to rob God of his attention. He doesn't care where your affections are. He doesn't want them, but he doesn't want them on God either. So he's going to give us so many things to have our minds occupied with so we won't be fully devoted to the Lord. That's his job, trying to trick us into looking elsewhere when we should be looking to God. So he shows up as a serpent. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, the enemy says to the woman, did God actually say? Did he actually say literally that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? He's questioning God's clear command. Instead of obeying God, he's getting her to question God. Did God actually say that? Satan, a deceiver, a tricker, a mass manipulator, a liar. Friend, when somebody turns away from the Lord who was wholeheartedly devoted to him, odds are months earlier, they began doing this, questioning the word of God and his intentions. Did God actually, did he actually mean that when he said that? And just like Satan was pulling Eve to do, Satan pulls us to do the same thing. And what happens is rather than being a humble student, we drift to becoming a proud critic of Scripture and of God. We become very judgmental towards the Lord. We accuse God rather than being a child and trusting, of being a trusting follower of his word. So each and every one of us here, including myself, every one of us, be very careful. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, take heed lest ye fall. Be very careful with your heart's posture to this wonderful book. Let him say what he says and live in light of it. Don't try to twist his words. So verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, and she tells the truth. She knows, she knows the right answer. She knows the right thing to do. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it even, lest you die. Call for obedience, and here's the consequence. Very clear. She knew it. But the serpent said to the woman, woman, you'll not surely die. God's a liar. And in fact, you can't trust him and his motives because you know what? He knows, verse 5, he knows that when you eat of it, that your eyes are going to be opened, and you're going to be wise. You're going to be like God, and you're going to be able to discern between good and evil. God is not trustworthy. He's a liar. Well, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and made a disciple. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
And they quickly sewed fig leaves together to make a covering, to make loincloths for them. Their eyes were opened, yet at this moment, mankind became blind, very blind. Suddenly, at once, they became aware of something that had changed. There was a loss. They felt a loss. They both were very aware and conscious that they were robbed of something that they had just a second ago. Something's different. Nakedness, loss, incompleteness. Something had gone. Something had, had left them. It's like a glory had departed mankind in regards to the Imago Dei being created in the image of God. Something has affected me. Now, we all experience this to some degree, don't we? Somehow or another, we know something is missing. Down deep in our minds and our hearts, there's something better. There's something higher. We just know it. It's built into who we are as humans. There's a possibility for something better somewhere. There's something more to life than what I'm experiencing right now. I just know it. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something out there. We all have this feeling that we were meant for bigger and higher and something more grand. It's built into all of us. We have this idea that we were created knowing we need happiness, not sadness, like it's ingrained into who we are. We're built for happiness and that it feels right. Sadness feels heavy. Sadness feels wrong. And that's not nurture. That's in our nature. That's how all of us, we're, we feel like we're designed for comfort, not discomfort. We like peace, not hostility. We like for things to be healed and whole, not broken and painful. We were meant for peace, not hostility. Peace is what's right. We were meant for joy, a life of joy, but somehow this joy has been robbed and changed and we experience sorrow instead. We all feel this reality. We've all been affected by Adam and Eve in this way, haven't we? I mean, it's like mankind is constantly restless, never truly at ease. And because of this, we find it difficult to live with ourselves. We've all experienced the same loss that's described here in Genesis chapter three. But do you see what Adam and Eve do with this feeling of loss? Do they turn to God, their friend, father, and creator? No. They try dealing with the loss themselves. They make aprons. They make coverings. They make fig leaves. They, they have fig leaves that cover themselves. They felt like something had to be done. They could not stay like this. How can we cover the thing that we've just lost? How can we make right what we've messed up? How can we make this better? Is there a reset button somewhere? Can we go back? How do I fix my problem? Our problem, my problem. And then in verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They hid amongst the trees in the garden. Remember, sin is running away from God, doing my own thing in my own way. And we see it right here. And then there's grace in the next few words. But the Lord God called to the man. Radical grace. There's nothing that Adam did to deserve God to call out to him in his rebellion. And had he not called out to him in his rebellion, mankind would still be on the run, away from God, hopeless. It is only grace that calls us back to God. 
It's only grace that God extends us an invitation to hear him and come near to him. So out of nothing but grace and mercy, God calls out to the man and says, where are you? Of course, he knew where he was. He was pulling Adam to confess. He said, well, a sound that I used to enjoy, I don't enjoy it anymore. I heard you coming. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. And so out of this fear, I I ran, and realizing I was naked, I hid myself. Something that wasn't innate to the original man and woman was fear. It wasn't there. Now there's fear. Now there's shame. Now they're hiding things. That's not how we were created to be. Now we have, like Adam in the garden, he was experiencing this anxiety as God was coming to him in the garden. He feels like, I'm in trouble, I've got to hide. Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Have you disobeyed? He's pulling for confession from Adam. Mankind has this sense of guilt. We have this sense of fear. We hide, we cover up. We hide out of fear, we hide out of guilt, we hide out of shame. It's ingrained to our fallen nature that we have received from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this is true of all of us. This is true of you. And I know we don't like objective sweeping statements like that, but it's nonetheless true. It's a profound truth. I mean, you and I, we like to pretend that we are powerful, that we're in control, that we're poised, masters of our own fate, that people don't bother us. We fly above all that. And I no longer experience fear. We say that we're not afraid, but we're terrified to our core. We're troubled. We go to bed, our minds racing with why life is the way that it is. We wake up and experience a new day, but then all of a sudden the reality of that situation that we're in the middle of begins to crush our day from from the moment we wake up. Regardless of what we do, we still have this sense of guilt. Like living as if we know that we're condemned. And there's like a voice within our own psyche that condemns us and accuses us. And we live with shame. We're unhappy. And I know, man, we want to be bold and brave and wonderful. But something else within us that tells us you're a villain. You're a crook. You're a coward. You're a fool. You're a failure. You're incomplete. You're not good enough. And maybe even some worse thoughts. And we can't rid ourselves of this. And we try. We try so hard. We try to be better. That'll take care of it. We try to sin less, but it's still there. That didn't work. So we, we rebel. We, we, we pursue sins, new sins. We embellish in sin, hoping to drown out and wash out the desire that we even care about it even more, but it's still there. We pursue new and bigger, better, faster, greater, thinner, stronger, richer, looking better in the mirror, having more wealth, having better health, being known, appreciated, and popular. It's still there. We cannot silence the voice of shame and guilt, and we try everything. And yet, condemnation and guilt and shame stands before us every day and stands over us every night. And we try running and hiding from this just like Adam and Eve did. We try coping with how terrible things are. We wear a mask so that other people won't know how terrible it is for me. All the while hoping that at some point things will change. If I just keep swimming, things are going to get better. 
Things are going to get different. But the agony, the shame, the guilt presses in, presses on, and it seems much like snow just to accumulate. Friend, it started at the beginning, and it's been continuing just like this with every man and woman, boy and girl ever since. Every one of us, just like Adam and Eve, we hear the word of God and we run and we hide. It is not in our fallen nature to walk towards the Lord, but to walk away from him. It is not in any of our natures, in the condition that we're born in, to pursue God and listen to his word and receive it. It is to reject him, curse him, and run away from him. Well, there's mankind in the garden, shame, failure, hopeless. God comes in. Adam runs. Adam hides. He runs from the only one that can help him. He runs from his benefactor. He runs from his savior. And this is so true of us today. Man, it seems that we'll try anything and everything except what God says clearly in his word. Maybe you're afraid of God this morning. I get it. Maybe you're resisting him, running and hiding from him because of the way that you're living life right now. Do you feel that God is against you? in some way, like he's not for you? Are you trying to argue against him? Are you wrestling with him, not wanting to submit to him? Or maybe you're open to some of what he wants to do in your life, but you close off and compartmentalize other parts of your life that you just don't want him to touch. Maybe you're afraid of listening to the truth that he has to say. This is exactly the condition of Adam and Eve in the garden. But know this, that God did not show up to the garden on that day just to give them the curse and punish them. That's not why he called out to Adam. There's more to that. He showed up to tell them of deliverance and hope and salvation. That's ultimately why he showed up into the garden. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? Verse 12, the man said, well, the woman that you gave to me, uh, she, gave, she gave me the fruit of the tree. I mean, I did eat it. But she gave it to me. You gave her to me. It's kind of on y'all. Like Adam blame shifts. He's blaming his sin and disobedience on his bride. She gave me the fruit. It wasn't me. He blames his sin and disobedience on God for giving him that bride. Then the Lord God said to the woman, and I admire this, she actually owns up. Adam blames shifts. She speaks the truth. He says this to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, I got tricked by the serpent and I ate. I disobeyed. Remember, sin is running away from God, doing my own thing in my own way. That's what I did. Friend, there's the, the problem. That is the problem, all caps. This is not a problem. This is the problem. Mankind disobeyed God. This was their problem. This is our problem. This is my problem. This is your problem. Do you have discontentment in any part of your life right now? Here's where it comes from. Have you ever experienced brokenness and sadness? Here's the source of that. 
Are you bitter and resentful towards something or someone? This is where it begins, right here. This is where it all starts. This is the source of our restlessness. This is the source of disapproval, unhappiness, dissatisfaction, displeasure, sadness, annoyance, frustration, condemnation, animosity, aggression, resentment, opposition, anxiety, irritation, hostility, and we go on and on and on. This is the source right here of that feeling that we all feel that something's not quite right, something's wrong. Man disobeyed God. Man thought he was so brilliant, tricked by the enemy, and brought us into such horrible, horrible conditions. Then the Lord said in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, this is the curse, because you have done this, Satan, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'm gonna put enmity between you and the woman, between mankind, and between your offspring and her offspring. He's gonna bruise your head. He's gonna crush your head you're going to wound and bruise his heel. And Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have not obeyed what I've spoken, you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Why is life the way that it is? Because of man and his decision. Why is there brokenness? Because of man. Why does God allow this and this to this to happen. Right here. Cursed because of you. You do this. I do this. Adam did this. We're the ones who've invited brokenness into creation. Not God. He, when he wants to, intervenes and brings peace. All we have invited in is war and hostility. It's our fault. It's not God's. He's only working to make things right. We're the ones who make things wrong. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death. Death. Man is utterly hopeless and helpless under this judgment and curse of God. Y'all, the blessings were being showered over Adam and Eve like crazy, like all around them. There was this one law However, there was this one condition. There was this single demand for obedience. In the garden, everything was yes. Do you mind if we, sure, cannot, yes. What about, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Unlimited, infinite yeses. There was just one rule. Don't touch that tree. We touch the tree. We reject what God wants, what God demands. And it was at that very moment, that point, when they went wrong and brought misery upon themselves and upon you and upon me. 
Verse 20, the man calls his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living. And we have the first death in the Bible. God slaughters an animal. The shedding of blood and skins, not fig leaves, are covering mankind. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. They're no longer completely ashamed. He's working with them some. It's a foretaste of the sacrificial system to atone for sin, which is a foretaste and shadow of Jesus Christ suffering, covering us, not with skin of an animal, but with his own blood, taking away our sins. Y'all, this is the story of, of how we get to where we are today. Mankind ceased to listen to God and to what God has to say. I mean, there's really only one explanation as for why the world is the way it is right now at this very minute, September 24th, 2023. There's one explanation as, to far, as far as why every single individual is the way that they are at this very second. Here it is. The man and woman listened to the question of the tempter. Did God actually say? In other words, and this happens to you. He tricks you the same way. He uses the same words. He tricks me the same way. And we take the bait. Do you really believe that is how he puts it in my head? Are, are you really going to be bound by that? Are you seriously going to be held back by his words? Don't you think there's an exception? It's the same way. In, garden, in the Garden of Eden, you see a very clear picture of who you are and who I am. But notice in verse 15, nestled in the midst of curse this and curse that upon mankind, there's some wonderful news. Like there's some hope for humanity. There's hope for you in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There's hope for me. There's hope for us. There's hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl. It's right here where we hear the very first pronouncement and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God is initiating a process. Do you see it? He's going to raise up a seed who's going to fight the tyrant of wickedness, the deceiver, the tricker, the conqueror of mankind. He's going to defeat him. The promised one is going to defeat Satan and deliver humanity from his grip. This is what the Bible is about, my friend. God making things right again. And he's stating his plan in Genesis 3.15. And th this plan has really been there before the beginning of time. And God is absolutely certain that nothing is going to stop his plan. The promised seed will bruise and crush the head of the evil one. Will crush, not may, not might, not boy, don't we hope so, or let's see how this plays out. No, he will crush his head. There is absolute certainty on the very authority of the eternal God. The crushing of the evil one will restore mankind back into relationship with God. And we read this in many parts of the Bible, but one example is in Galatians chapter 4, which in our reading plan we're going to hit up this Tuesday. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, when it was proper in the eyes of God, when everything was just right, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law the yoke of the law, to redeem those who are under the weight of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
and daughters of God. There is the real seed of the woman. A virgin birth. No man was his father. He had a stepdad named Joseph. He's born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. The seed of the woman has arrived. And I know in some of our stores, we've already got, like at Lowe's, there's already Christmas trees coming out for us. So I'll give you a foretaste of Christmas. This is what we celebrate. When the seed of the woman shows up, in Luke chapter 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, today, in the city of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. That's crazy. Everything I just said the last five minutes is absolute nuts that we don't deserve to hear. That's absolutely absurd. It is ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we can hear it. It's ridiculous that we have been gifted faith to believe it. God sent his son to live and die and beat death for you because you rebelled and hated God. We don't deserve this. He lived his perfect life unlike any other. He was arrested, tried, bogusly convicted, and crucified. Why? Galatians 2, 13 tells us, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins and trespasses. That's crazy. But he did it not by just saying, oh, we'll erase that. No, he did it by canceling the record of debt that our sin earned, that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, with all the laws that we broke, this he set aside. Oh, he dismissed it? No, he nailed it to the cross as his son became our sin. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities, talking about Satan and his enemies and his, his, his demons and death. He, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, reversing the shame that Adam and Eve had in the garden. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, was the bruising of the heel of Jesus the seed. The bruising was a wound that wasn't powerful enough to eternally destroy Jesus. Though he suffered, though he bore the punishment, though he tasted death, in doing so, he crushes the serpent's head, which was a mortal wound to the enemy. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of the same things. John chapter one, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, Satan, Lucifer, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, to death and sin and disease. You see, Jesus robbed Satan of the power of his grip and he's taking the sting out of death. 
And Satan, the evil deceiver, has received his mortal wound, but all those who by faith look to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and trust in him and believe him and follow him are taken out of the dominion of darkness, out of the dominion of Satan, out of the dominion of sin and death, and are rescued and redeemed to the fullness of life forever where peace and joy and hope and comfort is the norm. Because Jesus Christ comes in and becomes the better Adam than our first Adam. He takes care of us where Adam destroyed us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of this. First in verse 21, for as by a man came death, Adam, through Adam all die, but by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. He reversed that. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, he's a better representative. In verse 45 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But consider with me even more shadows, comparisons, contrast between Adam and the greater Adam, Adam and the second Adam, Adam and the last Adam, between Adam and Jesus. You see, history starts in a way with the first Adam, Jesus is called the last Adam. Jesus is the better and perfect Adam. Simply put, Adam failed, but Jesus succeeded. Adam sinned, Jesus atoned for sin. Through Adam, we inherit a sin nature. Through Jesus, we receive a new nature. Adam failed to represent us well. He completely shattered and destroyed our relationship with God. Jesus represents us perfectly, restoring us completely. To God the Father. Adam in the garden brought forth thorns because of his disobedience. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Adam was tempted by Satan and gave in, but Jesus was tempted by Satan. He stood so strong. Adam was stripped naked and was ashamed. Jesus was stripped naked as he bore our shame. Adam sold mankind into slavery through his rebellion, but Jesus pays the ransom and brings us back into relationship and freedom with God. Adam calls a significant chasm between us and God. Jesus closes that chasm with himself. Adam blames the sin of eating from the tree on his bride and for God for giving him his bride. Jesus takes full responsibility of the sin of his bride on a tree, the cross. Adam accomplishes death and separation. Jesus fully accomplishes life and reconciliation. Essentially, wherever Adam negatively affected you and me, Jesus reverses that effect, restoring us back to perfection in our relationship with God. Through Adam, we're orphaned and alone. Through Jesus, we're adopted and we have family. Adam delivers us to the grave. Jesus goes to the grave for us, setting us free from the grave. Adam gives us sin, making us sinful. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and gives us righteousness, making us sinless, holy, and blameless, above reproach before the Father. The life of the first bride came from the side of Adam being cut open. The side of Jesus was sliced open with a spear in order for his bride to have life. Adam was deceived and defeated by the serpent, but Jesus looked the serpent dead in the eyes. He called his bluff crushed his head, and he set his children free from his chains. Adam is a coward. Jesus is courageous. 
Adam robbed us of our innocence. Jesus robbed sin of its power and death of its sting. Adam failed as a leader, but Jesus leads us perfectly. Adam stubbornly steps back and runs from his blame. Jesus willingly steps forward, receiving our blame. Adam brought the curse upon us. Jesus became the curse for us. Adam failed. Jesus conquers. In the Garden of Eden, Adam ran and hid himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's being arrested, Jesus steps forward, boldly presenting himself. I am he. Through Adam, all are lost. But on the cross, Jesus lost none. Adam is silent when he should have spoken up. Jesus speaks up to, to telestai. It is finished, fully reversing the consequences of Adam's silence and disobedience. God tells Adam, be obedient to that tree. He disobeyed. God tells Jesus, be obedient to that tree, the cross, and he obeys. Through Adam, we fall. Through Jesus, we're saved. Through Adam, we have condemnation. Through Jesus, we have salvation. Through Adam, we're born sinners. Through Jesus, we're born again as saints. Adam was a sinner through and through. Jesus is a savior of sinners through and through. Adam comes naked to a living tree and disobeys God, spiritually murdering humanity. Jesus comes to a dead tree, the cross. He obeys God. He's stripped naked and he's murdered so that all who would believe in him would live. Essentially, Jesus did what he did to reverse the curse. Every one of us is born in Adam. Not every one of us has been born again in Jesus yet. There's hope for you. My hope is that you will be born again to the last Adam, Jesus Christ, where you embrace Jesus as your representative, leaving Adam far behind. And I know your sin is a lot. If it's like mine, it's great. But Jesus is greater than our sin, and his grace is deeper still. And you know, one day because of Jesus, we're going to experience a, a greater Eden, not in a garden, but in a city. And Revelation 22, among other passages, talks about this. Revelation 22 gives us these phrases describing it. It's a river of life, a tree of life, no curse, worship. We get to see him. No light. The Lord God is there. We'll reign over the earth forever and ever. God is there. I'll be there. I want you to be there. This is what we're longing for. This is what we're looking for. So for those who don't know Jesus yet, those who don't believe and follow Jesus yet, I want to ask you a question. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to think with me, okay? On what grounds are you not believing? Have you considered that? Like, what's your reason? What's, what's your arguments for why you're not following Jesus by faith? What's the grounds for your unbelief? What's the basis for you rejecting everything that you just heard? I mean, do you, do you honestly, and I ask this in complete sincerity, is there any things you're holding on to more than, well, I read this article or I heard this or no one actually believes like that anymore or science says this? Man, I'm asking you to consider your unbelief and analyze your rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm asking that you think about it. I want you to think about it. Because when you get down to it, unbelief believes in something wholeheartedly. 
you can't just say you don't believe. What do you believe in? In context, here today in this passage, it believes that God is wrong and the serpent is right. Belief accepts God's word. Unbelief accepts Satan's dogmatic statement that God's word is no big deal and we're gonna be all right. What else are you hoping in for the forgiveness of your sins? What are you relying on? What are you trusting in? We are all guilty. None of us are perfect. We are sinners. And every one of us will have our sins dealt with according to our representative. If your representative is Adam, you suffer for the consequences of your actions inherited from Adam. If it's through Jesus, you accept the consequences of his hard work forgiving you of your sin. Because ultimately, there's two groups of people that have ever lived throughout of all history, in this room, around the world, time past, time future, time present. There's two categories of people. We are all in one of two categories. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's those who believe in Jesus and they place their hope in him for salvation. There's others who are content in being an Adam, hoping that they can somehow figure out another way of salvation on their own. Two groups of people. Trust in Jesus and you're saved from your sin. Trust in Adam and you're in the very pathway of the wrath of God. That's it. There's two groups of people. If Adam is your representative, you're guilty. If Christ is your representative, you're innocent. Which one would you rather be? If Adam is your representative, you're condemned in your sin. If Jesus is your representative, you've been forgiven of your sin. Which one do you want? Condemned or forgiven? Guilty or innocent? If Adam is your representative, you're going to suffer in a place the Bible calls hell. It's apart from anything good or pleasurable. But if Christ is your representative, you're going to be in heaven in paradise forever. One is eternally dying, one is eternally living. Which one would you want? I mean, there's nothing, there's no one today able to meet your need except Jesus Christ. And what you're really looking for is only found in him. Nobody else can satisfy you. Nothing else is going to satisfy your life. It's Jesus who takes the curse upon himself and brings you back to God. So give up trying to rid yourself of guilt. You can't do that. Give up trying to be better on your own. You need more than just to be made better. You've got to be made brand new. Give up trying to solve your problems on your own by yourself. Give up trying to deliver yourself, save yourself, to try to be good enough. Give up trying to rid yourself of your shame. You never will. Without Jesus, you will never silence the shame. You're never going to get a sense of that failure of who you are released and relieved from who you are. You're always going to be living with a sense of lack, a sense of scarcity, a sense of loss, a sense of incompleteness, of a missing piece somewhere until you look to Jesus. You, you are not saved by being a good person. You are saved by belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior alone. And now don't leave this building and just stop sinning and start doing good things. That's just moralism. You're damned by moralism. You're saved by Christ. Don't run to religion and start doing good things, hoping to erase your past. Don't run from religion in rebellion, just start, starting to do more bad things. 
but run to Jesus in simple, humble, childlike faith and belief, believing this gospel, this good news of Jesus is what saves you. So believe it. Believe it. Please. I can't believe it. I know. I know. So tell God that. God, I can't believe this. If you want me to believe this, you have to make me believe this. You have to give me faith. Because this makes no sense. A virgin giving birth? You've got to help me believe this. This doesn't make sense to me. Tell him those things. Don't just sit by yourself with these things. Being content to be an unbeliever. There's more to this than that to those who are saved, to those who believe and follow Jesus, to those who have been gifted the gift of faith and you're responding in obedience, there is no shame. There is no condemnation in your life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Read it, Romans 5, chapter 1. There's no running from, from God anymore. There's no need for you to hide from God anymore. But you know what happens when Christians sin? We think, man, God's angry. I better go clean up. I'm going to kill his fly. I've, when I sin, I think, man, I've got to clean myself up first. I've got to let God cool down a little bit, and then I'm going to go work real hard to pull things together because I've got a big ask in prayer coming up, and so I need to make sure I do really good before I ask for this. That is you saving yourself. Can't happen. That's not Christianity. But it's like we believe that, if, that we, we make goodness deposits because we know we're going to make sin withdrawals. It's like after you sin, you feel under pressure to be really good for a couple days, and there's got to be this necessary space between me and God. But what we're essentially saying is that Jesus did not do enough, that his grace is not sufficient, that his work on the cross is not enough. He didn't suffer enough. I need to suffer more because Jesus and the cross wasn't enough. Friend, that's shame, that's guilt, that's moralism. Did he save you, or are you trying to save yourself? Are you looking for fig leaves or for the salvation in him that is sufficient? It's amazing how quickly us Christians forget that Jesus took care of all of this. We forget that he won the victory as we carry fear and experience shame. My hope, my prayer is that all of us may see and know that Jesus sufficiently provided for our complete salvation for all of it and that we simply receive it and believe it. That's all as a means of reminding us of Christ's finished work on our behalf, Jesus left us with an object lesson called the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, the Eucharist. He instituted the Lord's supper. He gave his disciples two visual aids to help them remember his saving work. He gives bread, which represents his perfect life, his body, that he lived as our representative in exchange for Adam, as a representative in our sinful lives. He gives us wine that represents the blood that is shed for us as he gives up his own life as a sacrifice for our salvation and redemption. And today, we who are Christians are gonna take this bread, we're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine, remembering what Jesus has accomplished for us. I pray and I ask that all of us will take time to consider the gospel that you've heard today, that you will think Christians are those who think deeply about these things. So think as you come up to the Lord's table today.
ponder, take a minute to pray, to journal, to forgive, to seek forgiveness, to confess. We're going to have servers on either side of the stage, and we're going to have self-serve stations in the back two corners. This is for Christians. As you come and take, dip, and taste, remind your soul, remind your mind and your heart of the truth of the gospel of Christ. Remind yourself of what Jesus Christ has done for you in transferring you from the dominion of Adam to the new dominion of the greater Adam. Seeing Adam as a shadow of our better, truer representative in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. These are the gifts of God for the people of God, and we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has come, that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he's coming back again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion, this time of worship, this time of response, this time of confession, this time of celebration and worship, and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering and celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ.